Hey, folks, we just want you to know that all the views and opinions expressed on Military Historians or People Too are ours and that of our guests. They do not represent any organizations, employers, and other entities with which we and our guests may be affiliated or associated. Okay? Got it? Enjoy the show. Sam Daly. How's it going, Sam? Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Nice to meet you. I'm Brian. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Thanks yeah, so. man. Uh, th- thanks for thanks for taking the time this afternoon. Yeah, my pleasure. I was trying to remember who who told us about Sam. I don't even remember remember now. It's been so long. I don't either. I remember um, it wasn't Michelle, right? Maybe it was Michelle. Was it Michelle? Yeah. Or was maybe. it Julie? Michelle Moyd. Maybe Michelle. Yeah, it might have or, been Michelle. Yeah, the only other guest of yours that I that I know is Jennifer Middlestat. So, but I guess she was relatively recent. That's who it was. That's who it was. You're right. That's that who it was. was. It, it was, was Jennifer. Jennifer. Yeah, that's yep. who it was. Yeah, maybe it was. Maybe it was both. Nice. Yeah, could have been See. both. Yeah, because I haven't seen Michelle since um, uh, New Orleans. You know, she did one of the days at the, oh, yeah. the summer seminar. Yeah, um, I haven't seen her. It's been in back in time. early June, but. Um, yeah, cool. No, no, we 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 like we like guest recommends because you know although we we think we know a lot of people, we don't know everyone. Yeah, and uh, so now we can add one more to that list. So. And and Great. Sam, your your stuff is uh, you know stuff that I don't know anything about. So uh, I love it. Love having you on here. I was uh, you know enjoyed looking through all your stuff last night. If you started getting academia.edu pop up saying someone Googled you and that that was me doing my research. So. <laughs> I'm always very impressed at the uh, the depth of your guys' research about your guests. So I, I hope well, I don't have to hide on the internet. But no, that's all, no, Brian. You're good, man. You're good. He, he digs deep. He digs deep. Look, we should go ahead and just get to it, right? Yeah. Uh, let's see. I, I don't really have any shout outs uh, other than the hurricane, right? I mean, yeah. you know, a it was just stunning to me how big these things are. That you know, the eye of that thing at one point was just south of where you're at in Statesboro, Brian, and it yeah. reached and, and the, the outer edge reached all the way up here to Spartanburg over 200 miles. Yeah. That's got, just crazy. Right. I got I got 10 inches of rain in less than 24 hours um, at my house. And I sent you the picture, Bill. I mean, I had yeah. had water creeping up on my side door. Uh, the first time I've ever been a little worried that maybe water was actually going to come into the house. But uh it was amazing. The next day, by two, three o'clock, it, water's gone. Wow! Just yeah, yeah. I mean it. You know that swamp that's, that's land, sandy. That sandy you know, soil there it soaked it right up. So it, it's like it's like it never happened. Yeah, it, it's just incredible. It's crazy what it does there. But I saw pictures on one of the Savannah TV news well websites of of you know Bullock County, Statesboro, and you know there were some roads washed out and and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, it actually did did some. But you never lost power, right? Never lost power, but people on the other side of the street from me did. Yeah, I think Alan. Alan said I had texted him a few times during the storm. He said he, they lost power for a while. And this morning, um, the school district said there were there were fifty roads that they could not send buses down. Wow. So uh, I mean, they they had school, but they just basically told those parents, "Hey, we understand. Can't get your kids. If you can't get them to school, we we get it, but we can't send yeah. the bus down that road." Yeah. So um, yeah. No, I've already pushed some deadlines back like my, my two online classes I've, I've had a couple people get in touch just say hey look i don't have power yeah i can't do anything and i'm like i get it so you know yep. no, no big deal that's yeah life that's happens. fine right yeah yep. that's perfectly fine but 
Yeah, that's all I got. Got the Volvo's, one of the Volvo's service this morning, and we don't need to discuss how much that cost. Um, but what you get uh, for buying a Volvo, Bill? I, you know, we've had both those things for almost seven years now, and they, they've been great cars. Yeah. And, and you, know, you know, I drive the one back and forth to Statesboro, and it's been, it's been, it's been super. But there is, since it's Labor Day weekend coming up, uh, and and of course, you know, what do we do on major holidays? Be it Memorial Day, Labor Day, whatever day, we go shopping, right? Yeah. And uh, in, in the American tradition and my support of capitalism, uh, I'm buying myself a John Deere riding lawnmower. You're in, oh, wow. You're doing that this weekend? I, I shit you not. I, I wow. am doing that this weekend. I am going to start. I am going to go back to taking care of the yard myself. Okay. I just, I, lawn. Are you a big garden person? I, You know, I... I I like doing the mowing the lawn, doing the weed whacking and all that trimming. Um, and I'm also a big uh, power wash fan. Mm. I love, love me some power washing. And I think it's just a Zen checkout thing. Like you just get on there and just do it. And, and you're, that's all you're thinking about. And there's also the added bonus for me, which is instant gratification. Cause I'm also yeah. all about that. And <laughs> so yeah. you, you get it all right there, but no, I've, I've been bougie for the past four or five years, you know, paying somebody to mow the grass. And I just, it's just getting to the point where my OCD-ness too is kicking in. And I'm like, you know, it looks great, but why didn't you do this? Right. Or why didn't you? So I just need to do it myself. Well, we, we will, we should get to Sam uh, because I'm sure he's busy, but I'm going to just a moment of perspective here. When my daughter started driving, I gave her my car. And I drove the, I now drive the extra car that was, we, we got when my wife's grandmother passed away. It is a 2001 PT cruiser. That's what I drive. That's what I drive. But the point here is that that PT cruiser, I could probably sell it for less than (laughs) $3,000. You are about to invest significantly more than that in your John Deere tractor. (laughs) I'm not. No, 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 no. I am getting, I am getting a low, low level. I mean, the the only like luxury item in it is it has a, it, the one I'm looking at has a cup holder, okay, and, and a, and a mulching kit. That's so that's it, man. I, I'm not I'm not going crazy with it. All all. right, all no. right. So sorry, Sam. You got to put up with this when, yeah. when, you, when you hang out with us a little bit. But yeah, let's let's introduce Great. Sam. And get to him. All right, Dr. Samuel Fury Childs Daly is associate professor of African and African American studies, history, and international comparative studies at Duke University. From 2016-2017, he was a postdoctoral fellow in the Center for Historical Analysis at Rutgers University. Sam earned his BA in African Studies and History at Columbia University, an MA in Historical Research Methods from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, as well as an MPhil in African Studies from King's College, University of Cambridge. He returned to the U.S. to complete his PhD in History at Columbia University. Sam is the author of A History of the Republic of Biafra, Law, Crime, and the Nigerian Civil War, and Cambridge did that one back in 2020. The book has won several awards, including the 2020 Law and Society Association's J. Willard Hurst Book Prize for the best book in legal history in any region or time period, and the African Studies Association of the United Kingdom's Fage and, or is it Fage? Am I saying that right? I think it's Phage. I'm not sure. Phage. Let's go there. Phage and Oliver Prize for the best book on Africa published in 2020 or 2021. Sam's articles have appeared in Law and History Review, Past and Present, Journal of African History, African Studies Review, and many other journals. His research has been funded by, among others, the Mellon Foundation, the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, the Max Planck Institute for Legal History and Legal Theory, 
and the American Historical Association. Sam's current book projects include Soldier's Paradise, Militarism in Africa After Empire, which is under contract with uh, Duke University Press, and also The Good Soldier, A History of Military Desertion. Now, Sam is very active um, with all sorts of media appearances. This is not his first podcast. We know he's busy, and we are glad that you're able to take a uh, uh, an hour to chat with us. Welcome, Sam. No, thank you so much for having me. I've, uh, I'm a longtime listener, first-time guest. Uh, I think your podcast is great. Thanks. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah. Well, hey, so so I got to ask you a personal question before we get into your your like background. You have you bulked up a little bit lately? You've been lifting. <laughs> uh I, I i have i do uh, there you go i guess uh, when i moved to north carolina i started uh becoming much more uh intentional about going yeah. to gym. and um so i guess i look somewhat different from my uh, older pictures well i was gonna say because some of the earlier pictures i was like is this the same guy <laughs> <laughs> so so kudos man the, the gym's you, pay, paying you. off for you yeah i'm delighted to hear it's showing thank you appreciate that <laughs> all right so uh sam tell us where you're from what your parents did and uh how you got into african uh legal and military history uh i'm originally from california uh from a place called santa maria on the central coast so like a, a not glamorous part of California, uh, one of those parts of California that is basically just farms. Um, and uh, I moved around a fair bit as a as a kid, and my my family eventually ended up in uh, Milwaukee, so I uh, kind of grew up there too. And we moved around because my parents uh, were, or are in fact, um, actors. They uh, mm. were... Um, uh, performed in the regional theater, which is a kind of circuit of, of theaters all over the country that um, uh, in kind of mid-sized cities mostly. And so I grew up in this very artistic, very weird um, household that um, put a lot of emphasis on reading and performing and everybody was always working on something interesting. My parents are now retired, but um, still, when I go home, everybody has their writing project and, you know, we all uh, workshop whatever we're writing in the evenings, which is <laughs> nice. So, um, yeah, it was, it's, uh, I definitely never had any interest in becoming an actor. I always thought it was a very stressful way to live. <laughs> uh, but my sister became an actress and and now... Uh, she lives in New York City and is mostly a, a stand-up comedian. So, oh, cool. Yeah, so I'm the only one in the family who didn't pursue the the family business of of performing. But you know, teaching is kind of performative sometimes too. I don't know. How yeah, to oh yeah, yeah. What what's what's her name? Because I, I want to. I'm sure there's some YouTube. Yeah, her name is Emily Fury. Uh, okay. If you, are, if you are ever in New York City, uh, she performs at many comedy clubs. Uh, she also has a very active Instagram. Uh, so yeah, she's, and, and just now she's in Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Oh, she's at Fringe. Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, they're, my, my parents are all much more interesting people than I am. And I have always, uh, had a chip on my shoulder about that, but it is what it is. <laughs> you had to have run into some real characters, like showing up at your house with your parents running in those circles. Like there had to be really interesting parties as a kid. <laughs> oh yeah yeah all my parents are total weirdos uh 
and I, you know, I, I seek out weirdos in my own life too. So uh, they make academics look, you know, sedate and, yeah. uh, and, and boring, but, um, but we are sedate and boring and I'm okay with that yeah. too. Yeah. So I got to ask you real quick. So your, your name, the name Fury, mm. what, what's, what's the origin of that? And, and where does that come from? Yeah, so most people who are named Fury are Irish travelers. Uh, okay. So of them is Tyson Fury, the... Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. All around just bad person, but, you know. Uh, but my my Fury is actually not from that origin. It's it's just an anglicized Italian name. So okay. a few years ago, um, there was a an actor named Sam Daly who started becoming more and more famous, and I watched that happen with some trepidation and decided to just get out in front of it by using my full name so uh, so now i use all four which i know it's like a lot to ask people to use four names but you know <laughs> no i love it yeah yeah um in case you're wondering yeah i did see a lot of that guy's stuff online when i was looking into you yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> he is—he is not a good person. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, politically complicated. Uh, uh, okay. Gets in a lot of fights, like outside the ring. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, if it makes you feel any better, I've said this on here before. Um, I started using the K and in, in in Brian Feltman. I'm now Brian K Feltman because the other Brian Feltman in the state of Georgia is a convicted murderer. Uh-huh. Ran, ran over his pregnant wife and uh and uh so i didn't want to be confused with that guy so uh yeah, yeah i feel your some distance yeah, yeah. I, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> the famous so, actor done anything bad yet but you know time will so time. <laughs> so so how did history happen for you so history happened for reasons that i think are pretty dilettantish honestly uh I, as a young person, you know, like many uh, nerdy young people, had a lot of obsessions, and um, my obsessions tended towards the macabre. So I was really into um, the Bolshevik Revolution, and uh, for whatever reason, and me too. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. 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 What What appealed about it to you? What was the? I I I I'd always found uh, just Russia this totally otherworldly place. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's such a polygot or it's so, uh, I guess another way to put it, it's just schizophrenic because it, it, you know, it's, it always has t- trouble finding its place or, or figuring out its identity, I guess is a better way to put it. And, and, but the whole World War One revolution period, I mean, that's what I did my uh, dissertation in and, you know, my first couple of books about the Americans who were involved there. And I, I'm still very fascinated. I'll, I'll watch Dr. Shivago every time it's on. Oh, I do love that See, movie. One of those people, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was a big Russophile. I loved Pasternak and I loved all the Russian classics. Yeah. So is that so I I guess how did that first get to you then? I, I don't remember? really remember. Yeah. Uh not I'm not sure. I I think it probably had something to do with my parents who were always exposing us to, you know, weird dark things uh through the cinema or through books. Right. Um I think it was Rocky Four. I think you watched Rocky Four. <laughs> that was it <laughs> that may have been it yeah yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but I, I guess I just have always always been a real antiquarian a person who thinks about the past all the time and um, a, a career in history just seemed like a kind of natural way to do that so 
more specifically, you know, when I when I got to college, I I took a lot of courses, and the ones that I found most convincing and most compelling and exciting were the history ones. So um, one thing led to another, and and here I am. Um, and then you know, I my my story of how I got to African studies and African history is just as uh, uninteresting, you know, or, or, or happens coincidental. It's a matter of happenstance. I, when I was in college, I, I took Swahili um, because it, you know, met at a convenient time or something like that. And then that snowballed into studying abroad in Tanzania and, and then eventually working my, my way over into Nigerian history. And, you know, I, I never had any particular connection to Africa, never really um, had thought much about African history prior to college even, but it just, it seemed like a place that fit a lot of the questions that I was interested in about how societies work, how they're born, how they die, how they fight with each other, how they fight with themselves. Um, there seemed to be a lot of good examples in African history of, of those thematic questions playing out. Um, and now, you know, many years later, here I am still doing it. But it, it started off as this kind of dilettantish curiosity, I guess. And when you, you know, we all, I think, you know, for those of us, you know, I do German history, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you feel like an outsider when you start, uh, you know, going into these other worlds um, that had to be even more pronounced uh, going to Africa, right? I mean, uh, how much time have you spent over there? It's been a lot of time over the years. I mean, I've lost count of how many trips I've taken and, you know, but I I still feel like an outsider and, and always will, I think. Yeah. Uh, Nigeria is not my home and it's a place that I always view a little bit at arm's length, no matter how much I may try to not do that. Um, and I think that that's okay. I actually, I actually don't make apologies for that. I think that's not necessarily a fatal flaw. Yeah. Um, there is some value in seeing a place from a perspective outside of it. I'm not saying that that's a better way. I think in some ways it's actually a worse way than being an insider, than being from the place. But but it's not without some benefit. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, I, my work is starting to, to move beyond African history and to um, take up themes that are putatively closer to my own experience that are about the United States or about, you know, people whom I might be descended from and that kind of thing. And I actually find no greater clarity there. Um, I think that, uh, you know, self-study and um, writing or studying things that are close to you isn't necessarily uh, a, a clearer way of studying things. Or yeah. um, it, in, in fact, it has its own forms of blurriness its own ways of being muddled um yeah so i think i've always been attracted to, to things that are a little bit distant from me or um, outside my experience and uh african history for better or for worse is is one of those things does, it, does that apply as well to the the military issues that you're interested in yeah definitely um there's this quote by Samuel Johnson, um, uh, every man thinks meanly of himself for never having been a soldier or never having been to sea. <laughs> and I've always felt a little bit of that. Um, I've never yeah. been in the armed forces, never even really been close to them. Um, the same is true of my other kind of area of study, legal history, I'm not a lawyer either. Uh, 
And I guess I've always felt a little bit of reticence about that, a little bit of maybe even shame about that. Um, but again, just like with, with geography, like when you're a little bit outside of the thematic area that you study, you see it differently. Again, not better or worse, just differently. And you can see an angle of it that somebody who lives in it maybe can't see. Um, I've also always been attracted to uh, projects or or themes that I find a little bit intimidating or scary. And both military history and legal history would fit that bill. You know, these are both areas of human experience that are, um, that have their own internal life in terms of art that outsiders often feel very, find very alienating or hard to understand. Uh, they're often about the most violent or frightening things that people can do to one another, whether that's, you know, something that transpires in a criminal court or on a battlefield. They are areas of study that don't invite people in. And I think that's actually exactly what attracts me to them. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if that is something that a lot of people who study military history from outside militaries feel, but it's certainly one that I do. Yeah. I mean, I share your, uh, you know, Bill's closer to the military than me. I mean, Bill's at least taught at the military, you know, at military institutions. Um, but I have that same feeling of kind of like, you know, a little a little bit of shame sometimes, especially when you're around people who were soldiers and then, you know, became military historians. And, you know, you can't help but uh, but but kind of think of Kant and, you know, you can't really understand anything that you have not experienced. And uh, so, you know, I'm never going to have that. Um, so uh, I think that that leads to that kind of takes imposter syndrome to a new level. You know, when you know that you're never you're never going to experience uh, the stuff that you're you're claiming to be an expert on. Um, so, uh, but yeah. Sam, as, as you pointed out, it's it's also you also have some benefit from that outsider's perspective. Yeah, I mean, so so there, there's there's pros and cons to it, and and it's and ultimately at the end of the day, like a lot of things, it's all about compromise. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, and that's what, that's where you end up. So did you start pulling these things together when you were at, uh, at, at Cambridge or at, when you were in London or later at Columbia, how, how did these things start to come together for you? Um, I think they started to come together when I started my PhD. So, um, after college, I spent two years in the UK, mm -hmm. um, you guys said one at SOAS, one at Cambridge, which could not be more different places. Incidentally, the school of Oriental sure. Studies is an old colonial training institute that reinvented itself as a very anti-colonial, but but still kept its old name. But still kept its old name and some of its old spirit too. Yeah, it's a it's a really strange place, a really unique place. Um, it's the only place in the world that I can think of where you can study, you know, Amharic in the morning and Burmese in the afternoon. Like it's 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 really really worldly, and it's incidentally always under threat too uh, from. Uh, you know, funding problems and declining moments. Sure. It's it's a bit of a mess of an institution, but one that is fascinating and it was a great place to be. And Cambridge, you know, Cambridge is a much more conservative place methodologically and sort of in in how it views the world. Um uh I liked both, but it was it was a real kind of whiplash sort of experience going between the two. Anyway, I, and then I, I came back to to New York to Columbia to do my PhD and and there that was really where my interests in law and militarism and social history really started to converge. And they converged uh, uh, through a lot of different things, but especially through a, a class that I took with a, 
a historian named Judith Circus, who is a historian of France and Algeria, um, who was herself kind of an outsider to um, to legal history, at least at that juncture of her career. And, um, you know, it was one of those magical classes where just about everybody in it ended up being a legal historian, even though none of us had been prior to that point. We, we <laughs> yeah. all just somehow, uh, you know, rubbed off on each other. And at Columbia, I also um, had a fantastic group of historians of Africa there, um, including Greg Mann, Mamadou Diouf, Rhiannon Stevens, Abosede George, Fred Cooper at NYU. I mean, these names may mean uh, less to people outside of, of African studies, but they're all, they were all just wonderful people to work with. And so there I started to think about, you know, where where legal history and military history might meet, what kinds of spots might they converge in? And one was uh, in in wartime. So in wartime, legal structures don't just melt away. They don't disappear. They aren't suspended immediately and indefinitely in the way that, you know, an Agamben or somebody might lead us to believe they are. People still need a way to get married and divorced and make claims to property and that kind of thing, even in the most chaotic violent kinds of war situations and the the particular war that um that i wanted to write about was the nigerian civil war uh, which uh took place in the late 1960s and was fought over the secession of the eastern part of nigeria which called itself the republic of biafra and i won't go into the details of how this happened but you know there, there was a there was a pogrom against members of the Igbo uh, minority uh, who called this region home um, that that precipitated the secession of that region and this experiment in creating a new country that was that was met with a lot of violence by the Nigerian federal side and the war that followed, which lasted for about three years, was immensely destructive and it was fought almost entirely on the territory of the Republic of Biafra. So it created this apocalyptic situation where starvation and aerial bombardment and weapons of war that, you know, Biafra called genocidal were, were used quite extensively. Um, the number of people who died is, is really up for debate, but it was probably over a million. I mean, we're talking about an extremely destructive war. And the, the, the project that I started working on in graduate school and that became my first book was about how people continued to live in those circumstances and continued to use law in those circumstances. So courts remained open and functional throughout even the most intense episodes of the fighting. And people continued to bring suits against one another over sometimes things that seem to us quite sort of petty, especially in a situation where people are starving and there are bombs falling everywhere. But people clung to legal procedure and legal process in this extremely difficult time. And I think that that is probably true of a lot of wars. Um, those those structures are hard to see in times of war, but I think they're usually there, um, even though they may seem to be suspended. Uh, people don't stop living, even in situations of pretty intense. Well, don't you think like the, the rule of law is one thing that you can hang on to? Yeah. For order, if you can't. I mean, it doesn't happen all, but, but it's something that you can, you can, it, it provides structure like you said amidst that chaos right yeah and so there's a vested interest on if, if it's possible to continue that yeah absolutely 
and you know you may have not much else besides that right. um people cling to to law when everything else is kind of evaporating yeah you know one of the things i've seen too is people become no less petty in times of war the kinds of things that people will mm. decide to take someone to court over you know you 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 think to yourself like really like you're you've got you know two sons out on the western front right now and you decided that this was a worthwhile endeavor but um yeah people you know they still uh think that that's important and they they want to use those avenues yeah absolutely um, and in fact they may be more likely to pursue what seems to us to be petty grievances because those petty grievances might become a matter of life and death. Like if somebody owes you a bag of grain and you need that bag of grain to survive, you're going to do everything you can to get it, including possibly going to court. Right. And then the other thing that that all this revealed was that in the criminal court, you get a lot of stories about how people survive through nefarious means in wartime. I think armed conflict can open up a space for deceit and deception. Mm Mm-hmm isn't there in peacetime not all not always but i think that this is a a thing that can happen and it definitely happened in the nigerian civil war when surviving becomes the order of the day um people will reinvent themselves they will call themselves new names they will invent backstories for themselves um they will uh try to pull one over on other people in order to survive themselves and so this kind of fraud or, or fraudulent crime flourishes in situations where other normal orders have broken down. Mm-hmm. And so in Biafra, you had so many people pretending to be people that they weren't, creating and using forged documents, involving themselves in complicated, basically con artistry, all in the in the name of surviving this, this extremely difficult circumstance. And then when the war ended in 1970, those things just, they didn't just go away. They, yeah. they endured after the war ended. And and the, the post-war was just as, in many ways, just as dangerous and just as difficult as, as the war itself. And so people realized that these skills that they had developed in misrepresenting themselves or, you know, creating convincing forgeries and that kind of thing, all those just carried on after the war ended. And this is important for Nigeria because Nigeria became associated with this thing called 419, which is a a form of fraud that is named after the section of the Nigerian Penal Code, section 419, that prohibits it. And it includes things like um, the emails that you get in your inbox purporting to come from Nigerian princes and offering to cut you in on some scheme. And, you know, all of that is, is, in my view, related to what happened during the war. There is a genealogical relationship between this particular form of crime that became associated with Nigeria and the situation of extreme hardship that existed in Biafra itself. So I don't think that that's necessarily true of every war. Um, Not all wars open up a space for deceit in that way, but it's something that, that, that battle can do. Well, I, when I was reading uh, reviews last night, one of the things that I, that, that really struck me was that the whole concept of of a legal document gets really blurry because you know it looks like you found cases of falsified documents that are being then actually signed by the correct officials. So it's like a little bit that you know, this is completely fake, but we got the right guy to sign. Oh yeah, totally. It becomes this Kafkaian like bureaucratic mess because here's a here's a government that isn't really a real state issuing documents in a time of utter chaos and crisis where no you know one office can't talk to another and that kind of thing 
everybody is just kind of doing it for themselves. Anybody with a stamp can call himself a bureaucrat, right? <laughs> and so what constitutes the official in that setting is is really blurry. Um, and that also kind of makes us start to, or makes me question like, what what is the state itself? Like what um, what is necessary for a state to be considered a real state. And Biafra is one of those places that is kind of shadowy and blurry, and it's not really sh- clear whether it existed or not, or if it did exist, you know, how how much did it exist? Those documents that are so fly by night is a good kind of illustration of that. And that's probably true of, of states that are that are more meaningful too. You know, it's it's always in the eye of the beholder. There's no such thing as as a bureaucratic process that is inherently real or true it's always a kind of relational thing Biafra is just an extreme example of that relationality so do you, our understanding is is that you got to look at you, you you got access to things that a lot of people hadn't seen before if anybody has, has never used before you know tell us a little bit about that but also I'm curious if there was any you came across any blurring of the lines between the civil system and the military justice system yeah so the other place where law and military stuff really meet would be in martial law, would right. be in court martial and that kind of thing. And that's the, the book that I'm currently working on now is is much more about that. But there was some of that in the in the context of the Nigerian Civil War too. The the documents that that went into this book were from uh, all over the place. M- most of them were from repositories that weren't really set up for historical research. We're talking about you know the storerooms of of courts in small towns right that haven't been opened in many years you know not because people have forgotten that they're there or anything i'm not saying i discovered anything that's not that's that wasn't what happened but these are documents that uh, have no purpose in the legal system because they are uh they were created by a government that no longer exists and that maybe never really existed at least in the in the minds of the nigerian state uh, so for any legal purpose, like ascertaining precedent or whatever, they're they're valueless. But for the historian, they're amazing. They are records of um, wartime situations that I think you will find nowhere else. You know, one of the one of the problems with how the story of this war has been told, and the story of a lot of African wars, frankly, is that it's always told from outsiders. It's always told from mm-hmm the records of foreign spies or humanitarian organizations or uh, uh, international organizations like the UN. Um, And in all of that, the actual experience of the people who fought these wars or lived through them is almost totally invisible. There's very little in the way of social history of African warfare. And these legal records um, gave that in spades. You could see how people survived. You could see the kinds of things that they did to one another under the the flag of war. Um, you could see how they thought about their predicament. You know, a lot of court cases, people take the stand uh, as a as a way to um, to just complain about their lives or the, or the world, and that is usually dismissed by judges. But it's very valuable for for social historians. Um, we don't, this is a war that wasn't very long ago, but we don't have a lot of that kind of record for it. So um, I just want to, you know, put in a plug for any, anybody who is listening, who, who is interested in, 
in thinking about legal history, legal history and legal historical sources can be valuable for all kinds of purposes that are not about the law, including social history, including operational matters of the type that many military historians are, are interested in. Um, court records can give you a lot of that. So yeah. don't, don't sleep on military, on, uh, on legal history, as many people do. Yeah, I think that we just, uh, even as historians, we we tend to find legal legal documents a bit too bureaucratic. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. You can really get a lot of valuable information um, from those those sources. Yeah, yeah. And and it's there. Importantly, you know, people keep those records. They do. They do. And you know, it's it. A lot of it is bureaucratic, and a lot of it is pretty obtuse. It's hard to understand the the poetics of law if you're not uh, trained in them. But then once in a while you turn a page and there's a testimony from somebody completely unvarnished, a sworn statement. Doesn't mean it's true necessarily, but it's it's somebody's voice in a way that you just do not get um, in, uh, in from other kinds of uh, historical materials. And that those moments are are immensely valuable and very exciting too. So how often did you have someone you know approach you because they had heard that there's this American guy looking in these boxes of old documents that that no one else has really cared about? I mean, that had you know if you're going in these small you know uh, towns, people had to hear that you were there. Yeah, um, yeah. I always felt like there was. I, had, I always had like a week in <laughs> in any given place before you know, my presence had been registered and someone up the chain of command had been asked if I should really be there, you know. <laughs> uh, these, these are these are all public records. Yeah. You know, I'm not pulling one over on anybody by looking at them, but that just because something is public doesn't mean it's public to everybody. For everyone, yeah. Yeah. Um uh yes, but but I was I was uh often surprised by how um open people were about sharing these kinds of records and also also sharing their own memories and experiences of the war. Yeah. Uh, I think that wouldn't have been true not too long ago, but the war is the civil, the Nigerian civil war is now long enough ago that people are willing to talk about it without it becoming, um, you know, a source of a lot of consternation. Um, so, People were quite generous with their recollections, with their documents, et cetera. Um, most of this work was done in working courts as well, you know, courts that are still being used in the present by people. So that was always kind of strange to like, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you always you always had to um, follow the dress code of the court, which means like basically a, a jacket and, and tie. Yeah. And, the work that I was doing in these archives was extremely filthy. <laughs> so <laughs> I would uh, walk in in my like you know n- nicely pressed uh, white shirt and walk out just like covered in filth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah, it was it was it was an exciting kind of research and and I I enjoyed doing it. Um, uh, the thrill of of being in those kinds of places uh, can't be can't be overstated yeah i mean i think you know very often when i'm in german archives i just like i'll have these moments where i'm like i can't believe based on what i thought i would be doing as an adult that i'm now (laughs) you know over over here looking at these records from the first world war and for you you know to be in in africa like you said and you're getting dirty going through these old boxes like you must just have you know these times where you're like this is amazing 
I mean that that this is what I have ended up doing for a living. But that's you know that just shows us that we we still love what we do. Yeah, I love our profession. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. Bill, do you want to uh, do a folk? I'm particularly interested in the desertion project. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, uh, you know, looking at your stuff last night, you, you, just like you you, you have made it clear, you know, legal history can reveal a ton about social history, um, about what remains important to people in times of war. Uh, what do you think that, that we've been getting wrong about desertion, uh, so far in the way we look at it? Cause the, the, one of your, you know, projects is looking at, desertion in Africa as a whole, right? You're you're going outside of Nigeria. Yeah. And frankly, I think I'm probably going to go outside of Africa too. I, I want that desertion project to be really broad in scope. And I, I my ambition is to make it kind of a global history of desertion. I'm not sure how, you know, it's, it's early days of this. So I'm not sure how, how, what exactly the scale will be, but I want it to be broad. And I think, I mean, the main thing that I think we've been getting wrong about desertion is just by not talking about it at all. Um, desertion doesn't figure very prominently in most military histories, at least in my reading of them. Maybe you guys feel differently, but it seems to be kind of a, a lacuna for, for military history and for history at large. It is a thing that is hard to talk about and hard to know about because those who desert do not advertise that. Uh, there are not memoirs by deserters. There are not, you know, there are not uh, um, interviews that you can do with them because they're usually either dead or don't want to talk about it with anybody. Yeah, they become ghosts. They become yeah. ghosts. Desertion yeah. is a kind of death, a kind yeah. of social death. Um, and that is true across a really wide swath of time and space, I think. It is not... Um, there, there are, you know, there are no militaries that are soft on desertion. Right. It is a crime that they punish most harshly and most consistently, more so than you know a lot of other forms of misconduct. And and I guess the reason why is is desertion uh, threatens to undo the whole premise of military organization. If you can just walk away, well, right. then everything's going to fall apart. And so. You know, I, 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 like I said, early days of this project, but I started the project, which is provisionally called The Good Soldier, um, after the the famous novel of um, the Czech 1920s, The Good Soldier's Trail, yeah. mm-hmm. um, by Yaroslav Hasek. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I hope so. I started this project thinking, okay, this is going to be about ethical decisions that soldiers make in times of of, of war. Um, it's going to be about the decision to walk away from the battlefield. Uh, you, we all probably listen to the Bo Bergdahl uh, serial um, yeah. uh, show. You know, the way that he explained his desertion was as this kind of ethical decision, which I think is the way that a lot of deserters explain it when they get caught. And I wanted it to be about like, you know, this hopeful side of war, like what soldiers do when they leave the battlefield. And as it turns out, that was maybe too sanguine of a of a premise. And the records that I've been looking at about acts of desertion in a lot of different historical contexts mostly show a rampage. They show they show men taking the opportunity, knowing that they will probably be caught and probably be killed, to go out with a bang. So there's a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of misconduct. 
Um, there are also cases of men who try to just try to get home. Um, but the, the larger numbers seem to be about like really enacting violence. So that's something that I'm working through right now. Like as I'm talking about, it. I'm not very articulated about it because it's, it's a project in process. But what I can say about those desertion stories is that they're always fascinating. And here too, the sources that I'm mostly using to get at them are legal ones. Right. So records, right. of, records of courts martial for the most part. And most of those courts martial end in the same way, again, across lots of different contexts, and that is death. But in the course of reaching a verdict, uh, they usually investigate why the desertion happened, what allowed it to happen, what was going through the individual soldier or soldier's minds when he or they deserted. Desertion is often something that happens as a, as a group activity, which is interesting. And in those kinds of investigations, you can find, again, really fascinating social history and also kind of like psychological history about what, what decisions are being made in the moment. I think that desertion is not always just about fear or panic. Uh, that tends to be the way that a lot of militaries like to think about it. I think that usually something else is going on too. Like, I, I, I feel like I'm kind of talking all over the place. It's because this project is intentionally all over the place, <laughs> uh, but stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think you're right. I mean, even uh, my first book was on prisoners of war in the first yeah. world war. And so the big, the, the primary concern for prisoners of war is very often i hope they don't think i'm a deserter and you know going across to the enemy is not the smartest way to desert because the chance that you're going to survive that is 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 fairly low but when you read you know the the capture reports from a lot of these guys you know it could be that they were worried that their wife was having an affair with you know so and so and they just wanted to get back home and check that out. You know, it's not always that I'm scared of dying. It's that I've got this other thing that seems really pressing to me and I need to go take care of it. Yeah. Or it's the harvest and your labor. Yeah. 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 You know, there's all kinds of reasons. Yeah. Sam, let me ask you about the the other project, Soldier's Paradise, uh, militarism in, in, in Africa after empire. Uh, one thing I'm, I'm very curious about with that, and I've, I've seen a few books here and there that, that touch upon it, is the legacy of colonial militaries. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the British, the French, the German, whoever go in and, you know, they've got their small colonial, you know, their expeditionary force or whatever set up there. And of course they recruit local population into that and they, they make a, they build a colonial army. And of course the British were probably the best at this. I just thinking, you know, what they've done, all, you know, all the, all the places that they, they were at. Um, you know, the French during the French Indochina War, you know, recruited a, a what they called the Nationalist Army, you know, in, in Vietnam and, of course, in Africa. Uh, so you end up having when the colonials leave, when the, when the occupiers leave, you, you have a bunch of guys who probably have some weapons and have enough training and organization. And it's almost open season in some cases. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that an accurate or kind of idea or how do you what do you feel about that? Yeah. So when the British Empire died, uh, countries in Africa were left with this mixed inheritance. Yeah. And some of the things in that inheritance people wanted to keep using, found found useful. Um, some of them they didn't. And the years after independence were basically about sorting through that estate 
and picking out which things they wanted to use and which things they wanted to discard. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, it is. The, it's yeah. In the state. Yeah. That's all, I love it. That's awesome. So it wasn't yeah. like all or nothing thing. It wasn't like you reject everything or you accept everything. It was a piecemeal process, which has kind of been lost, I think, in a lot of the historiography yeah. of Africa after independence. And that was as true of militaries as anything else. So there were some aspects of colonial militarism that African governments after independence decided to keep, others that they decided to, to discard. And the argument of this book, Soldier's Paradise, is that Africa's post-colonial military regimes were basically trying to create a new civilization in martial form in this era. You know, the way that these military governments are remembered is as kind of um, uh, short-lived, chaotic, not particularly well thought out. Opportunistic. Opportunistic, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, coups and that kind of right. thing. They were that. But some of these military governments lasted for decades. And over the course of those decades, they really developed an ideology and a belief system. And they had an aesthetic. They had a plan for the future. So militarism was a kind of civilization in Africa in this period, which I think has nobody has has quite been willing to accept the um you know the the the, the kind of inspiration for this project was actually a soviet uh, book a, a book about the soviet union um stephen Kotkin's uh, magnetic mountain stalinism as a civilization which similarly was trying to understand this thing that people have thought is just despotism as actually a more elaborate more more full of meaning um civilizational logic or system and I, I i think that this book is trying to do something similar with militarism though not at the same scale of kopkin which is like yeah. a, you know, insane scale so military regimes used law um, as best they could to try to basically change how people thought and the ambition of most military regimes in africa was basically to remake society in the image of the army um, to make people think and act like soldiers. And military regimes believed that if everybody did this, then a more meaningful freedom could be built, a more meaningful freedom than the one that they had you know, inherited from Britain and which was kind of, um, uh, to a lot of people, not a full freedom. So there's, uh, to I think a lot of civilians, there's a, there's a paradox there, like, the idea that freedom would come from military style discipline, you know, doesn't comport with how most of us live our lives. But in the martial habit of mind, I think that idea is actually pretty common. You know, militaries argue that by accepting the strictures and constraints of military life, you will be liberated from your own worst impulses and a, a space of true freedom will open up. You know, this is something that drill sergeants yeah. tell recruits in many small ways. Africa's military leaders believed that that could be a political philosophy for everybody. And they really tried over the course of these decades to make that happen. They weren't successful at it. I'm not endorsing this vision of society, which in many yeah, ways- Yeah, well, no, you, what you were talking about, I mean, what, what I described to open up with this hmm. was clearly, clearly very stereotypical and superficial. And to carry my superficiality even further, you know, you, you could say that military regimes push this in in the interest of just main, of maintaining order and control mm -hmm. vis a civilization. But but what you're you're suggesting is really intriguing. I, I uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of people, a lot of civilians, at least for a while, 
believed that that was a good project. Yeah. They, they saw some beauty in the military way of doing things. They, yeah. they wanted order in their own lives and believed that the military could furnish it, could make that happen. So it's not the fact, it's not the case that all African societies were dragged along kicking and screaming into military regimes. There were a fair number of people who actually shared soldiers' ambitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, you know, that didn't work out particularly well. Militarism was not a very good way of organizing most societies, but it was it was one of the things that people really thought was possible. And African history in this era has been told in a much more kind of hopeful vein. And I want to I want to I want to put militarism back among the options that were available to people in the post-colonial world as as one way to organize society because a lot of people did believe in that. And a lot of the world's population at large, you know, was was under the jackboot in one form or another in this yeah. period. You know, sure. Brazil, Indonesia, That's just like Latin America, yeah, yeah. Some of the world's largest countries were military regimes for a very long time. Right. So it's worth taking that seriously as a form of thought. That's fascinating. That's it that's is. really yeah. interesting. We'll see. The book yeah. will be in uh, September of of 2024 from Duke University Press. So okay, yep. well, look, we look forward to that. Absolutely, absolutely. Brian, we should we should do some rapid fire with, yeah, with, our, with our friend Sam here because he, okay. he has really uh treated us today. This has just yeah, been really been interesting. Gr- been good, Gosh, yeah. No, you guys you guys going are, all day. Man. I just I do want to say you guys are such good interviewers. I listen to your podcast. I think, you know, that's how I should do like oral history uh interviews is just chat to people. My my approach is very different. My <laughs> is, I'm just gonna sit there and be awkward and seem kind of dumb. And maybe if they think I'm dumb, they're like tell me things. Which it works for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys are extremely charismatic. It's great. No, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank, yeah, you. thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, look, we'll do our rapid fire deal. Since you're a fan of the pod, you know what's coming. Uh, we'll, we'll ask a series of questions and be mindful that because it is our show, we will judge and comment on your responses accordingly. So, Brian, kick it off. All right. Question yeah. one. Title of your autobiography. Oh man, uh, <laughs> mistakes were made. I don't know. <laughs> That's good. All right. I like There's it. A list of regrets. That would be it. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> Not my, um, you know, Brian, I thought the other day, you know, we were talking about Billy Connolly's uh, One Strapped and Interesting. I think the one that tops that is Peter O'Toole's two autobiographies the one when he was a kid during the Blitz and the one when he was in the Royal Acting Academy and stuff in the 50s through, I think, Lawrence Arabian. But Loitering with intent. <laughs> that yeah, right? Good. Loitering that's with good. intent. Yeah. I, I like that one a lot. That's good. But that's good. Sam, that's that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. All right. Uh favorite Nigerian food. Oh, uh, I'll give you my favorite, my least favorite as well. All uh, right. My favorite is uh pepper soup, which is a extremely spicy uh soup, usually made with fish. That is fantastic. And if you like spicy food, it's quite good. My least favorite uh, Nigerian food is uh, also uh, one that is universally widely beloved in Nigeria, but I find it hard to stomach. And that is something called amala, which is a a, uh, a kind of porridge made out of fermented yam. Um, Nigerian cuisine is extremely varied and uh, uh, is often... <laughs> Um, very, very spicy. So yeah. one has to be careful. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. 
Okay, you get to listen to only one band or singer for the rest of your life. Who is it? This is a hard one. Um, yep. I did think about it knowing that you might ask it. And I think my answer would be Bjork. I've always loved Bjork. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's a first. Yeah. So what, what's the, what, yeah. How, when, when and how did that stick with you? I, I, I've loved her since I was an adolescent. And yeah. she is, I don't know, she was able to capture emotional depth and complexity in a way that I think few people can. Hmm. And she's also just, weird in a way that i really love yeah uh she has a podcast actually that she does with a equally a strange icelandic journalist um called sonic symbolism where she goes through each of her albums and they talk about the the, the circumstance of its production yeah and it's really great like even if you don't like bjork it's a really fantastic um meditation on artistic process mm -hmm. uh, so i recommend it check that out uh, this 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 one is is important uh, yeah. based upon the time you have spent in New York. What's what is the best borough? Oh, the best borough. Oof, controversial. Uh, I'm going to say Queens. Yeah. So I I lived in Queens and Sunnyside Queens for a few years in graduate school, and I I really loved it. Queens is definitely the least like well maybe not quite the least but the second least exciting borough probably but it's the 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 place that is best to live um it's extremely worldly it's got great restaurants it's close to everything it's pretty ugly like architecturally it's uninspiring um but i don't know somehow that that opens up a space for for more imaginative thinking when you're surrounded by kind of ugly buildings yeah. i find that i i i have more interesting thoughts than when i'm surrounded huh? No, my yeah, my like hunch that. is that a lot of people, you know, New York is 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 one or the other. There's no middle ground there. It's like you either love New York City or you, you can't, you don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. I know very few people who are like, ah, New York City, ah, you know, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. I love living there. I spent most of my youth there. Right. Um, but now that I'm a slightly older person, uh, I I kind of like the quiet life of of Durham. <laughs> Durham, um, yeah, yeah. It's this is a very easy place to live. There you go. Yeah, yeah for sure. It was wonderful, but I don't terribly miss it. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. What are you binge watching? Um. Truthfully, nothing right now, but I did recently watch something that I really loved called uh, Joe Para Talks With You. It is a really um, sweet, but kind of uh, bitter and weird uh, TV show by a comedian named Joe Para. Um, and each episode is him talking with you about something, uh, some, some banal thing. And it's really meditative and strangely beautiful in some moments and it's also uh it's filmed in uh michigan in the up okay and beautiful yeah you're a westerner it's an yeah. extreme midwestern yeah. uh, cultural artifact uh i highly recommend it it's okay. short see the whole thing in like two evenings um, you, you've got a you've got a meditative streak in you i think yeah, you, you have yeah. mentioned that word i think at least four yeah. times oh, since dear. we've been talking yes, yeah. Mm, yeah yeah very yeah. telling i like it <laughs> very interesting so i i've got to uh i've got to drop um 
a recommendation here. I, Bill, I don't know if you told me this, who told me, but a long time ago, somebody told me that I should watch Berlin Station. And mm. I finally started it. And yeah. uh, how is great. it? It's, it's good. like, you know, spy, CIA thriller kind of stuff. Um, right. You know, just uh, nothing you have to think a whole lot about. Who told Somebody told us, was it Gary Sheffield? Maybe somebody like that told us about that. I think, yeah, I remember. Right? And, and it was one of those things where I looked at it and I was like, nah, I'm not going to watch that. And then for some reason, like two days ago, I started watching it and yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, this is good. Berlin so, Station. Gotcha. Berlin Station. Cool. Great. Um, okay. Uh, what are you reading for pleasure? Uh, right now I'm reading um, a book called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue by Samuel Delaney. Uh, Samuel Delaney is better known, is best known as a sci-fi writer, um, but he also wrote um, this memoir slash polemic about Times Square um, that is largely about his youth going to like... Uh, pornographic movie theaters in times square oh, yeah. and oh, the uh, good old days and then it sort of blurs into this um this look at the transformation of times square in the 90s from red light district to you know disneyfied hellscape yeah. that it is today and it's just great he's such a good writer the stories are fantastic um and it's it's poetic but also like a page turner so i, right. I recommend it cool. Very good. Okay, what is the best work of history that you've recently read? Um, there are so many different categories. Um, I will say the the one that probably is closest to the the, the interests of of listeners of this podcast would be Elizabeth Samet's um, "Looking for the mm. Good War." Yeah, looking for the good oh, war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Strictly speaking, a history book. It's it's more a literary analysis, but there's a lot of history in it. Yeah it's just fantastic it's really well written um it's fascinating it will resonate with everyone because it's about you know the complicated romance that that americans and other people have with the, the second world war which yeah. is something probably everyone has some sort of story about. i used it in a graduate readings uh in the spring and oh, oh yeah great. It went over really well um, oh, cool. they're really intrigued by it yeah we we keep saying that we're gonna have her on. yeah we need to get her on uh, yeah we need yeah. to do that yeah yeah great. yeah yeah yep. all right um, beyond military history, I'll also put in a plug for uh, Natasha Wheatley's The Death and Life of States, which just came out from Princeton University Press. Um, and it's it's about like telling the story of decolonization from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is not oh, cool. immediately, you know, is intuitive, but she does it beautifully and it's fascinating. And it's also, it's, an, it's one of those books that is very poetic, but she actually pulls it off. You know how some sure. people treat people yeah. and yeah. don't? Yeah, she actually yep. does. Yeah, okay, so that's, that's a good one too. Good. Okay, uh, assuming that your loved ones, pets, and what have you are already out, if your house was on fire and you had time to get one thing, what would you grab? Oh man, I think I would just let it burn. Uh, <laughs> uh, so for the last few months, I've been living out of a suitcase and just traveling a lot and i just got home like two right. days ago. and honestly i feel overwhelmed overwhelmed so, yeah so i think the next time i move i'm just going to get rid of as much as possible uh there's I something have, cathartic about that yeah there is truly, yeah we've truly. done it a couple of times over the years and there's something yeah 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 i think i think not being attached to things is is a good thing for me uh yeah so, so yeah 
again, that's our, there's that meditative boy. You are deep. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, deep thinker. I, yeah. I like so, it. Where, where's that's, that? Hey, this is the kind yeah. of people that end up at Duke, Bill. This is why. Yeah, I'm, that's true. <laughs> Who knew? The Cameron crazies are a bunch of sin, right? We're not a, a peaceful place. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, did you have a childhood nickname? Oh, uh, I don't think I did. Actually, that's a really good question. Or if I did, I didn't. I didn't know about it. You didn't know it. Okay, <laughs> let me let me throw another one just because it just popped into my head. Um, does your sister ever use you for material in her routines? She does. She okay. does. She uses all of us. In fact, a lot of her material is about uh, our family, mostly my parents, who are you know very wacky people yeah i think i give her less grist for the mill but um but no i have definitely uh appeared in her in her in her stand-up before i think usually is the kind of stick in the mud so whatever if that's that's <laughs> the, the meditative stick in the mud yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually is a great chance, so chill out everybody yeah. <laughs> all right last question um you've you've heard this before uh you know bill is a fan of the brisket i am a fan of pork barbecue uh so first part for you brisket or pork um second part uh do you want to give a shout out to a place in durham or, or wherever one of the, the many places you've been uh definitely pork and there are many many places in durham as you can imagine yes a lot of good barbecue here uh my personal favorite is q shack uh which is great i think it's been there for a long time it's pretty basic but it's fantastic durham i don't know have you guys spent a lot of time in durham I've only been there once or twice. So yeah, many years. Uh, not really. Yeah, but um, I haven't had barbecue there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a really nice city. It's small. Um, it's very worldly. It's very pleasant. Uh, and the food is truly fantastic. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I bet hey, so. Yeah. Hey, one Good. more question that's not rapid fire. Um, have you run into uh, Jennifer Siegel at Duke at all? No. She she was my one of my uh dissertation committee members at Ohio State and she's she's been at Duke I want to say like 2 years now but she got this weird like she's in like the school of public administration or something but also the history department the public of, policy. Yeah. Yeah, it's like one of those. Yeah, but uh yeah, she's great. Didn't know if you'd run in cross paths with her uh, or not. Yeah, um, I but but yeah. I, I was on leave, so I, I probably uh wasn't around when she arrived. Um but I will definitely seek her out. Yeah. All right. Well, man, yeah. this has been great. We really appreciate. Yeah, this has you, been uh, super. Oh my gosh, talk to us. Yeah, I thanks so much for having me. I'm, and, I'm honored. You know, I, I got to say, like, I have, I always have a little bit of anxiety about people in military history. Like, I want to be read by more, and so to be yeah. invited was, was very, very nice. Thank that's you. why we're doing it, man. Yeah, that's why yeah, we're doing absolutely. it. Absolutely. I, are you guys going to be at the SMH? And yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I should be there too. So. Oh, nice. good. Excellent. 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 Yeah. Let's get a drink. Well, let's yeah, go find yeah. barbecue somewhere. Yeah, or yeah. barbecue. Yeah. Either <laughs> right. or, or both. <laughs> All right. But but Sam, thanks, man. It's good to meet you. We, yeah, we look forward to seeing you at the SMH. Absolutely. Yeah. Take care, Sam. Really All appreciate right. it. Bye. Take care, man. See you, Thank Brian. You. See you, Bill.